FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Hi, this is Dr. Chet Rehal. My guest today is Dr. Ray Gibbons, former director of our Nuclear Cardiology Laboratory and previous president of the American Heart Association. Ray, welcome. Good to be here, Chet. Ray, we're going to be talking about a topic today that you've spent a lot of time and energy thinking and writing about, and that is healthcare reform or the healthcare crisis. Let me ask you, Ray, are we really in a crisis? Is it worse now than before, or is it just the same rhetoric that we hear over and over again? Whenever I talk about this issue, I point out to the audience that they shouldn't shoot the messenger because the news isn't good. It is clearly worse than it was. The long-term trends where healthcare expenses exceed the growth in the economy have continued. But most importantly, the baby boomers like me have started to reach retirement age. In the past, about 5,000 Americans reached age 65 on a given day. Now it's 10,000, and that will go on for the next 20 years. There's been a lot of focus on Medicare Part A and the trust fund and how that's going to run out of money sometime soon. But not enough attention have been, has been focused on the rest of the federal entitlement programs. The Government Accounting Office published data last year, showed that Part B, that's the professional component, is in deficit of about $22 trillion. Part D, the drug program, is in deficit of about $16 trillion. And that compares to Social Security, which is $12 trillion. You add those three up and you get a total of $51 trillion that we have promised and we haven't funded. People don't realize that this is very broad, not just for the federal government, but also for the states, and that the crisis is growing. Ray, we work in a very technologically intensive specialty. It seems sometimes that cardiology is being singled out, both on the imaging and the procedural side. Is is this appropriate? Is it true? What should cardiologists um, be doing to position themselves for the near future? Well, I think, first of all, we should realize that we have been singled out, and we're going to be singled out in the future. And there are actually several very compelling reasons for that. One is we have a lot of patients. Cardiologists sort of know this, but they don't realize quite how big we are. For Medicare, more than one in three patients has chronic ischemic heart disease. More than one in six has congestive heart failure. And almost one in 10 has atrial fibrillation. Now, by comparison, breast cancer is 2% of the Medicare population, Prostate cancer is 3%, and acute myocardial infarction is 1%. So we have a lot of the patients. Number two is we spend a lot of money. Healthcare costs are about the extremes. A minority of patients account for most of the cost. The actual top 1% of patients account for 20% of healthcare spending in the United States. And the top 10% account for more than 60% of healthcare spending. We in cardiology have a lot of patients in those top tiers. And finally, there's been a lot of concern about the regional variation, particularly in procedure rates in cardiology. And the Dartmouth Healthcare Atlas has focused on that over the years, but a lot of the data are very worrisome. We don't know what the right rate of PCI is, 
but five leading healthcare markets, Boston, Baltimore, Rochester, Minnesota, Cleveland, Ohio, and Durham, North Carolina, have rates of between seven and 12 PCIs per 1,000 Medicare beneficiaries. There are nine healthcare markets in the United States that have rates that are more than 50% higher than the highest of those five. Hard to believe that they're not doing something very different. So as the system moves forward, we're going to be under scrutiny. And I think we need to recognize that. And from an individual response standpoint, we have to support our organizations in their effort to participate in the process. Ray, the practice of cardiology in this country is increasingly becoming integrated with private practitioners now signing up to work for healthcare systems or larger institutions, sometimes on a salaried basis. How do you think this trend will affect healthcare costs and quality in the services that we're delivering? It's a great question. I think that the hope is that uh, the healthcare policy planners in Washington think it's going to lead to an instant change of uh, modification of those procedure rates that we talked about and reduced costs. The data thus far don't support a big change. For imaging, it's been studied. From 2000 to 2009, technically sophisticated imaging, and Medicare classifies MRI, CT, PET, and SPECT in that category, both cardiac and non-cardiac, those rose 85%. Now, in 2010, as practices began to be absorbed in hospitals, there was a decline. Depending on how you measure it, it was between one and a half and two and a half percent. So you can see that the decline was very small compared to the prior growth. So time will tell whether uh, this consolidation is the answer. Certainly, you and I know, working in a salaried institution, that the absence of a direct financial incentive does make a difference. But it's going to take a long time for that to play out. So, Ray, so if integration so far has not resulted in major observable decreases in utilization, and if the patient base is growing, and if the resources are already in hock to the tune of trillions of dollars, that this does not bode well for hospital and physician finances. What are the AHA and the ACC, our two leading national organizations, doing to help us respond to this crisis in healthcare? Both organizations are very actively involved and have been for more than seven years. The AHA uh, put out health care reform principles that were part of the national health care reform debate. Both organizations put out principles for comparative effectiveness research um, that have helped to frame how that research should be done and how it should be interpreted. More recently, both organizations have come to recognize that the system is changing and they better change with it. So the Task Force on Performance Measures and the Task Force on Practice Guidelines have commissioned a high-level group to review the methodology by which they develop those statements to see whether issues of cost and value ought to be incorporated in them. I'm fortunate enough to serve on that group and there will be a report forthcoming, I hope, in the next 90 to 180 days. I can't share any more details, but I think both organizations are trying to position themselves to be 
uh, constructive forces. And the ACC has supported the Choosing Wisely campaign, which I think is an important effort for professionals to be part of the solution to the problem. So, Ray, at a more granular level, what can individual physicians do in their practices to improve patient health in a cost-effective manner? I think, first of all, they can support the Choosing Wisely campaign. And if they just go on Google and put in Choosing Wisely, they'll get the uh, various organization statements and priorities. And I won't take the time to go through them here. But I think they can also recognize that for ischemic heart disease, that huge group I described earlier, the basics are important and we are not doing them well. It's the whole spirit of the Million Hearts campaign that CMS and CDC started last year with support from both the AHA and ACC to do a better job on the ABCs, A for aspirin, B for blood pressure, C for cholesterol, and S for smoking cessation. We all need to support that because we're not doing very well. Cardiologists don't realize how badly we're doing for secondary prevention. The free MI trial published in the New England Journal last November is an indictment of the whole system where they showed that for non-Medicare patients with health insurance, with health insurance, that statins, beta blockers, and ARBs or ACE inhibitors post-myocardial infarction were each done less than half of the time. Mm -hmm. And when you ask the question how many patients were on all three, it was 10%. And if you provided the drugs for free, it went up to 13%. So if you think about that, six out of seven patients with insurance given the drugs for free that are proven were not being used. Big study, a lot of data, not a statistical fluke. We need to do better, and I think everybody in the listening audience needs to do better about these things. Ray, it's clear to me that cardiologists are very good at acute episodic care. Perhaps we're less good at chronic disease management, particularly secondary prevention, as you've pointed out. A second major trend in cardiovascular diseases and medicine in general has been toward team-based care with more RNs, NPPAs, advanced practitioners being involved in the longitudinal care and management of our patients. Do you think this is an opportunity for the cardiovascular community to improve its, its, its management of secondary prevention and chronic diseases? Absolutely. I think we all have an understanding if we look at quality improvement efforts, particularly in our hospitals, they're all led by nurses. Nurses are much better at following checklists and actually trying to make sure that everything that should be done is done 100% of the time. And I think that principle needs to be extrapolated to outpatient care. There are great models. The COURAGE trial did a wonderful job on a team basis in most of the centers of delivering appropriate medical therapy to reduce patient risk. Here at Mayo, we created a unit of people for that. And as you know, we're now trying to extend that to non-courage patients who live in Olmsted County, Minnesota. I think it's the way we need to move to improve those numbers that I mentioned. And those numbers should call for improvement on everybody's part. And most of that improvement is going to be through teams of care. 
So really, Ray, this is an important opportunity for us. There will be plenty of patients as, as the population ages for us to do our acute episodic care. But perhaps this is the way that we need to team up with the RNs and PPAs so that we can do good acute and chronic care. So should we be threatened by, by health care reform? Or as I've said a couple of times now, is this actually a good opportunity for us? I think it is an opportunity. Uh, it certainly is threatening if people want to operate in solely the way they have practiced in the past. They're not going to be able to. They're going to be monitored more carefully with respect to quality. And I think that uh, moving forward, we need to keep our eye on the horizon and try to do a better job of delivering the basics of CAD care. Ray, I really want to thank you for this important and stimulating conversation. My guest today has been Dr. Ray Gibbons. I'm sh- I hope you found his insights into the current health care crisis and the reform efforts that are going on nationally um, as uh, uh, stimulating as I did. So, Ray, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.